Welcome to the Journey of a Christian Dad podcast. I'm your host, Dan Lewis. Who is the spiritual leader of your family? Is it you, your pastor, your spouse, the media? Do you know? I did. And sadly, no one was taking responsibility to lead our family. Well, friends, someone needs to take that job, and that man is you. You may not feel qualified, and some days I don't. With the help of God and a community of dads helping each other on their journey, you can be the leader your family deserves. We welcome you to the Journey of the Christian Dad podcast. All right, guys, welcome back. Thanks for coming back yet another week. So here is the review of the week. This one is not an Apple podcast review of the week. This is one that was just sent to me privately. So this is from a member of our The Ascent group. So kind of a smaller private group where we're getting together and help guys move up and, uh, and climb the mountain. A lot of times what we do is just go along the road with our head down and wherever it takes us, that's where we go. So these guys have actually actually picked a destination they want to get to and are climbing together. And it's been super cool. So this is from a member who kind of lacked confidence, lacked direction, had a, a lot of willpower, was willing to endure quite a bit, but felt like he was uh, stagnant in life. So this review, this is where this one comes in. He's been in the group for three weeks now. And he says, I feel like progress is really going great. I feel like I'm starting to see what I actually need to do. And that's a big deal for me. So knowing this guy and seeing his confidence level in just three weeks go from being lost and directionless to now having a, a course and a path that he's charting and a lot better habits. So the guests that I've got on, I think we're going to talk habits and, and systems and things like that as well. It's really cool when you put a plan in place and have guys around you that help move you in that direction and hold you accountable. So all right, that is it for the review of the week. And now time to move on to our special guest. So I've got, <laughs> well, I'll just, you've got, he's got a podcast. It's called Just a Guy in the Pew. And I, that's like the perfect way to introduce John Edwards. So if you've ever been to a church and just sat there at a pew and, and kind of listened and observed and whatever, and not taken action and thought to yourself, man, I should probably do something. That's what we're going to hear from John Edwards is a life story uh, that has had some crazy success and then uh you know some some severe severe uh challenges and then kind of once you hit the bottom and climb your way out of it what that what that looks like so huh, rather than run his story <laughs> i'm gonna let him go so welcome welcome to the journey of a christian dad podcast everybody john edwards Hell, thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, my friend. It's been an honor to be with you. You know, I know we've talked about this for a while, so it's great to have a chance to be with you and just so happy to see what you got going on and, and you know, how well your podcast is doing. And, you know, you do a great job, man, and you're a great example to a lot of people. So, you know, I appreciate that as a brother in the Lord and brother in Christ to see somebody else out there walking the line too and, and trying to bring others with them. So, you know, you know, add a boys to you on everything you're doing. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. So I did not know you when you were in the pit. Sure. I feel, feel like after you had climbed out a little bit and got a little bit of traction and direction in life, I feel like we connected somewhere early on in that, in that journey. So, yeah. And you've mm -hmm. just grown and shared so much since. So being authentic is, is one of the keys to what you do and mm -hmm. me as well. So living an authentic lifestyle where you don't have to you know, remember which face you're supposed to put on it, which yeah. event you're at and the people you're in front of. So 
I, yeah. I applaud you for just being able to share who you are, like in a very, very real way. And, you know, not, not hiding, uh, you know, things that other guys, you know, typically do hide. So. Sure. Sure. <laughs> it's been a blessing, but yeah, we can, we can jump into the story, whatever you want to do, man. Like, where do you, wherever you want to start, we'll, we'll go from there. You lead and I'll follow my brother. All right. All right. So I'll kind of intro it up just a bit, you know, you're a larger size guy who was blessed with some <laughs> athletic talent. So us as men, a lot of us like to be athletes, like to, like to play, like to compete, like to perform, like to do the best at what we can. And then we get mm -hmm. to a spot where things change and we realize we're limited by different things. And so you're sure. a pretty dang good athlete. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was a good basketball player. You know, I, I played a lot of sports growing up. I mean, I played football. I would never, really in love with football until I got older. Like, I mean, I, I really enjoy it now just watching it and playing with my son and stuff like that. But when I was a kid, I just really went into it. And I, I just think it's because I, I didn't really went around it much. I didn't understand the rules a lot. And just, just you know, the coach, we went to a small private school. So like every kid had to play every sport just to have a team. And, yeah. uh, and so I was like the guy who threw in his like defensive end and had no idea what I was doing. So, <laughs> but, <laughs> But I did that for a little bit. And another way to stay in shape, you know, throughout the seasons of the year. But uh, I pitched, you know, playing baseball, really enjoyed playing baseball. A lot more than I enjoy watching it. I'm, I'm a bigger, you know, fan of playing than I am watching that sport. But basketball was always my love. You know, my dad was really, really good. He was uh, still holds records in the state of Mississippi. You know, he went oh, wow. to Ole Miss to play uh, there and, and got drafted as soon as he got to Ole Miss into the Army. So, he wasn't uh, able to actually play very long there, but there were a lot of people that said he could have played in the NBA, you know, huh. and, and uh, you know, he had like a 50 point game in, in high school. I mean, this is back in, you know, he was born in 41. So, you know, this is back in the sixties and stuff and if, in the fifties and he was really good and you know, six foot guy, you know, I'm six foot eight. I don't know really where that came from. I've got a <laughs> sister that's six foot and one that's five, six and my mom was five, four. So I don't know. I just kind of happened, but yeah, grew up playing ball, you know, was was 5'10 till I was about 15 years old, played guard until uh, that point. And then all of a sudden when I, you know, between 15 and 16, went to get my driver's license, I grew six inches. And so I was 6'4 a year later. And But I still had the, the skill set of a guard, you know. Um, so a lot of people would think you'd be in the poster. And I get asked right. that a lot. Did you play center? And I did when they put me there, but for the most part, I played guard. I uh, wow. enjoyed it growing up, man. I was, that's how I, my stress reliever, man, whenever something would go wrong in my life or I was dealing with something, you know, school issues, things like that, I'd get outside on the court and I'd shoot for hours, you know, and, and I'd, I'd probably shoot a thousand shots. I never knew I shot that many because I was just in a zone with it and mm -hmm. just a refuge for me, played a lot of church leagues and then got into school and played up through high school and really want to play in college, but you know, it didn't work out for a couple of different reasons. I had some injuries and things like that, but um, you know, God has a different plan for all of us. Uh, I still enjoy playing every once in a while. I got a little arthritis in, in both feet, so I got to be careful of that. But yeah, it was something I grew up loving, uh, loving to do and had a lot of friends and, uh, you know, a lot of teamwork building. You know, what was that, your, what was your dad like? You mentioned he was instrumental in, in your yeah, sports side. Sure. Well, what was he, he was, like just overall. So I love my dad to death, you know, and, and I, and I tell him that as much as I can, but my dad was born and raised on a farm in Mississippi, you know, one of, of six kids. And he was one of two boys, the youngest of all of them. 
And, you know, a lot of, a lot of ways they were raised as farmhands. You know, I didn't know this until I was older uh, a couple of years ago, actually, but his parents didn't get along very well. Um, they fought and they fussed all the time and his siblings were a lot older than him. So they were married off and, you know, while he was still in high school and coming up through college and, you know, he was, he wound up actually getting out of the army was honorably discharged because my grandfather's hand got caught in a cotton gin and it ripped oh, off wow. four of his fingers. And so someone had to go home and help with the farm. And, uh, you know, one of the first things he told them when he went back was, uh, you know, I grew up in this house listening to nothing but yelling and fighting and all this. And if that starts again, then I'm gone, you know, I'm not going to stay here. And I never knew that growing up. They never told us that, but I knew that there was something different between my mom's side of the family and my dad's. Um, you know, my mom's family was very loving, very hugging, kissing, you know, just, you know, crawling up in, in my mom's lap, things like that, you know, as a young boy and that side of the family, there was a lot of that, but on my dad's, you know, I didn't realize I was older that him and his, his brothers and sisters, there weren't a lot of hugs and, you know, love you and checking on each other. I mean, they had relationships, but it wasn't close like that, you know? And, and so, you know, growing up, my dad and I had a great relationship as far as loving each other, but he never really said it much. I knew my dad loved me because he worked his tail off. You know, he would leave. He worked at Napa Auto Parts and retired from there after 45 years. You know, he was in the, he started working in a warehouse and worked his way up to a bookkeeper and all of those things. And he wound up, you know, could have worked at headquarters from what everybody told me. He just never wanted to leave uh, Memphis because my mother was an only child and he didn't want to take her away from her family. Yeah, he was, my dad, growing up on a farm, he worked hard. I mean, he taught himself how to play basketball. He built a dirt court in the middle of a field. He built his own basketball goal. He built a track to run around it to stay in shape. You know, he, he bought a cow from his grandfather or from his father and then wound up making money on it and buying more. He just was always a hard worker. And so with him, everything was like your word, your words, your bond. You know, a man yeah. puts his head down. He works hard. He never complains. He doesn't need anybody or anything. And that was sort of the mentality I, I grew up with. And so all, a lot of my life, I spent looking for the affirmation of my father. You know, I, he would show up to my games, you know, and do things like that. But there were also times where it just seemed like no matter what I could do, it wasn't ever good enough. You know, I, I remember I had a game where I scored a lot of points my ninth grade year and one of the best games I ever played. And I wound up missing a free throw during the game. That week, he had told me to get my hair cut. I had hair back then. <laughs> and, uh, and he told me to get my hair cut. And I didn't. And there, this free throw was towards the end of the game. It was real sweaty. My hair was stuck, sticking to my forehead. And I shot my first free throw, made it. And the second one, I moved my hair out of my way like that, you know. And I shot the free throw, and I missed it. Now, Dad, a lot of nights would come to our games, and then he would drive back to work because he might work till midnight. He was the type guy that, if this is what needs to get done today, I'm going to be here until it's done. He'd leave and go to our games, but go back to work. So, but he always was like, whoever played the game, they're riding with him and he would drive us home and then go back to work. Everybody else rode with mom. Ooh. And so I was like, this is the night, man. Like I'm going to, I'm going to finally hear like, man, I'm so proud of you and all those things and got in the truck and, and, you know, was just sitting there like a giddy kid going, this is it. I've been waiting on it all these nights where I've been told what I didn't do right. And all this, and we're going to finally going to get it, hear that from him. And, he just waited a few minutes, turned out onto the street. And he said, man, if you had, if you cut your hair, you would have missed that free throw. Uh, and my heart was just crushed, you know, cause I'm like, I, I, this is the best game I've ever played to this point. And all you see is, is the one thing I did wrong, you know? And, 
And so my dad and I had a relationship like that for a long time in our life where I just, I, I sought his approval so much. But uh, one of the reasons after the in injury that I quit basketball was because I got tired of, of playing because I wasn't playing for me. I was playing for him and his aspirations and what he wanted me to do. And, and you know, I had height that he didn't ha have. I had skill and, you know, I just, he wanted me to, to, to you know, to, to really progress and all those things and, and have a life of basketball. And I came home from high school one night and just was sick of it, you know, after the injuries and all those things. And I was just like, I don't want to play anymore. And it was one of the worst fights we ever had in our life. It was a blow up in our kitchen. My mom was sitting there and I, I finally, I was always sort of afraid of my dad. He was a very strong disciplinarian. I mean, we got spanked a lot with anything, <laughs> switches, hairbrushes, you know, uh, floss water handles, you know, whatever. And that's just the way that they were raised. You know, you, you, you don't behave, you're, you're going to get a spanking. My dad didn't believe yeah, in a lot of yeah. grounding and stuff taken away. So long story short, you know, I was always a little afraid of my dad and I never really, you know, barked back at him. Well, that night I did. And I told him that, you know, I didn't want to play anymore. And I was tired of playing for him that I'd lost my desire to play. And if I did play, I wanted to play in a church league with my friends and things like that. And he just kept telling me, you know, the, the things dads will tell you, if you quit now, you'll, you'll be a quitter the rest of your life. You're this, that kind of stuff. And I just stopped in that moment. And I just yelled at him and said, Do you, are you ever going to tell me you love me? Are you ever going to tell me you're proud of me? Are you ever going to be, am I ever going to be good enough for you? And I had even gone into at that time of my life working for Napa because I wanted to be like my dad. I, he was my hero, yeah. you know, and that's why it was so important for me to hear those things from him, but I didn't a lot. So, you know, nowadays as he's gotten older, he's, he's softened a lot and there's a, a lot of, I love you's and a lot of proud, I'm proud of you's and my <laughs> mother passed, you know, years ago. And I think that kind of opened his eyes up to a lot of things too, but we have a great relationship, but it was, it was tough growing up with him um, with some of that just, gruff you know no excuses disciplinarian authoritative kind of kind of father yeah yeah i see that one both ways looking yeah. for the approval of our dad no matter what age that we are and then at yeah. the same time as we're raising our own kids you know what does that car ride home from the game sound like yeah <laughs> you know what what is what are our affirmations what are our praise of our kids and you know what are we emphasizing that they're doing you know, the negative, yeah. the positive, the uh, practices, you know, hey, I saw you, you know, practice a lot this week and you made that shot. You hit the free throw. You guarded that kid. And, you know, you, you're at a higher level than you were at the beginning of the season yeah. or whatever, because of the intentions and because of the actions and practices, not the result of the behavior. Sure. Yeah, it is. It's important to build up, you know, children like that. I mean, you don't know how how people hear things, you know, I can remember, you know, I wasn't very good at math and my father was great at math. And I remember one night he was watching a ball game and that's what he liked to do when he was at home. He, you know, he, he wanted to watch a ball game and that's, mm -hmm. you know, don't get in front of the TV. Don't, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And so I asked him for help and he quickly showed me something and too quick for me to get when I was in fourth grade or something. Right. And, you know, and I went back in there and tried it and then kind of meekly walked back in and said, I, I still don't understand. And, I remember him looking at me and I'm sure that he regrets this, you know, uh, you know, but he looked at me and he said, are you on drugs or something? And I was in fourth grade, you know, and I just, to this day, when I think that memory, I could feel like a knife going into my heart, you know, and going, no, I just don't understand. And I'm not as good at it as you are. And I wish I was more important than this game right now that you're watching. And so with my children, like I, I've caught myself saying things, 
and I'll say, man, like I, I told myself I would never, you know, say things like that. I'll hear my father come out through my voice. And that's the problem, man, is you get this learned, you know, this learned behavior because it's what you were, you were born with. Yes. The reason my father couldn't give the love the way that I wanted it was because he wasn't given love that way. And, you know, if we're not careful that we can, it can form how we look at God, especially for, you know, men, because in being fathers, because, you know, how children see their father is how they're going to see God, the father, you know, if you're, if you're a, a you know, a disciplinarian, authoritative, punishing, kind of father, then chances are, that's how they're going to see God, you know? So every time that I'm with my kids, I mean, it's just, Hey, you did a bad thing, but you're not bad, right? God doesn't make bad things. You just made a bad decision and we need to work on making better decisions. Yes. You know, we, we do punish, we, you know, they lose laptops and, you know, video game privileges and all that kind of stuff. But, um, we always, Angel and I have tried to work through and, and never say things like, you know, that, that was stupid. Because what people will hear is you just called me stupid, not, not what I did stupid. You're calling me stupid. And so we try to stay away from those things and, and just sort of try to build up and affirm, you know, uh, discipline when we need to, you know, yeah. but, but always build up. So fast forward a few years, you get into, yeah. it sounds like the family business, so to speak, you get into sure. sales and get married and life yeah. advances. What, what was it like when you went from you know, after high school and then got into what I would say adulthood and started yeah. getting some responsibility and things. What, what changed from uh, being a fourth grader, not doing drugs to, as you got being older, a 20 year old doing them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I see you. I pick it, I pick it up what you're putting down there. <laughs> uh, I, uh, so first of all, I was born and raised in Memphis. I was Baptist uh, 18 years of my life. I love the Lord. I love the church. My parents did a great job of having us there. Every time the doors were open, uh, all my friends were there. I went to the Episcopal school because it was, we live in Memphis and the, the public school wasn't very nice. You know, it wasn't very safe, you know, where we were. So my parents worked hard to be able to send us to this Episcopal school, literally down the block from my house. And uh, so I had a couple of different, you know, lenses of, of Christianity as a youth, but the Baptist church is where I spent my time. You know, I was vacation Bible school, mission trips. Uh, my weekends were spent helping at special friends camps with kids with special needs things like that. And I loved it. And at one time in my life, I wanted to be a youth minister, um, you know, cause I had a great one. Who's now the pastor of that church. I'm still in contact with, uh, but that's how I kind of grew up. And at the time of 18 Memphis being in the middle of the South, it's just a melting pot for all these different universities that people's parents have gone to. So, you know, Ole Miss, Mississippi state, you know, Vanderbilt, Arkansas, Kentucky, Alabama, Auburn, these places are all within like a four hour drive. Okay. You know, if not that. And so a lot of people wind up in Memphis after college because it's one of the bigger cities in the South and their kids want to go to those same schools, you know? So when we were 18, all of a sudden this community I'd surrounded myself with starts going off to school. And it's, I'd never thought about that. I thought, man, I want to be here forever. Right. In this moment where we are. And uh, my church. I remember that time in my life too, yeah. where after high school, boom, everybody's gone. Yeah. Yeah. And it's lonely. And like you didn't, my church was an older church. So you had the youth group and then like the next Sunday school kind of thing was, you know, my parents' age and, you know, you're 18 who yeah. wants to go be in Sunday school, with your parents, right. you know? So I quit, you know, really kind of going to church. I lost that community. And then I lost my desire to go to services on Sunday and things like that. Well, my dad looked at me and said, what are you going to do? You know, you're going to work at Napa. You're going to go to college. You're going to do both. 
And so I didn't know what I wanted to be. I, I was in love with the University of Memphis because of Penny Hardaway. And I just always oh, yeah. wanted to play there and all those things. Uh, Larry Finch, Elliot Perry, all those guys that played there. My dad took me to all those games growing up. And so I just, you know, that was always wanted to go there. So it's a commuter school anyway. I go tell dad I'm going to go to college. He's paying for it. I go and the first couple of weeks, I realized it was the loneliest I've ever been in my life. I was on campus with thousands of people. And I didn't know a soul. And you know, I was sitting in classes and, you know, beautiful girls were in there and I tried talking to them and no one would talk to me. I don't know if it's because I look like this or they just <laughs> didn't, you know, just weren't interested for other reasons. But <laughs> but I couldn't get anybody to talk to me. And I would go I would go to work at Napa, where I started when I was 16, work in a warehouse all day, lonely and then go to school, lonely, come home, be lonely. So, you know, my sister had joined a, uh, a sorority, you know, three years before. She's three years older than me. And I knew one guy left in town that I knew had something to do with a fraternity. Well, it turns out he was a rush chairman. And so I called him. He was great to be in high school, three years older than me. Let me hang around with the seniors when I was a freshman. We were just always friends. So he said, yeah, we're going to have rush week, man. You ought to come out and join the fraternity. I think people would like you. So, you know, at the time I drank a little bit in high school, not a lot, you know, smoked a little bit of pot, you know, but not enough to be dangerous. And, and, uh, it got in that fraternity and all that changed, you know, um, you brought up my dad earlier, looking back at it now, I was looking for affirmation. I was looking for somewhere to belong. I wanted people to like me. I wanted people to, to tell me I was cool. Right. And to be part of a group. And when I speak to young people, I, I often talk about this, you know, kids that are getting ready to go to college is, you know, you're about to get freedom and you're excited about it. All these, I can't wait to get away from my parents, have my own thing, do my own thing, party if I want to, that kind of stuff. But freedom's a good thing. If you know who you are, if you don't, then it's a very dangerous thing because you look to others to tell you who you are. And that's what happened. I'd started, you know, making my way up at Napa. I was making about $35,000 a year as a warehouse manager, shipping manager at 20 years old, 19 years old, had all the money in the world with no bills, you know, and, and pretty soon everybody in the fraternity kind of figured that out. Um, and I had all these friends, right. I could buy them alcohol. I could buy them drugs. I could, get into clubs. I was willing to drive, you know, it's stupid, not worrying about DUIs, things like that. And, you know, so I started doing whatever made people like me that was drinking. Then it was smoking a lot more pot and then it was pills and then it was ecstasy and then it was acid. And then I made a terrible night uh, decision in my, my life one night to do cocaine. Uh, I was at a house with a bunch of guys been drinking all day, watching football and uh, didn't know that these guys did all that. You did that. You know, it was the one thing I hadn't seen. And uh, I was in a position where I was kind of drunk and didn't want to drive home. Memphis doesn't have a lot of taxis. There wasn't Uber or Lyft at the time. And so I walked back there looking for a ride and find these guys doing blow in the back of the house. And, um, and I go in there and make a dumb decision and, and, and join them. And, uh, you know, Dan, at that point, it was crazy. I never felt anything like that. Like, I felt like I could run through a wall, you know, mm. I, I had those visions of, of, like being a kid in the backseat of my parents' car, telling them I'd never do drugs and never drink and all that stuff had gone out the window. I went home that night and I said, you know, I'll never do that again. But that next Friday, I was with those guys again at a different house. And this time it wasn't in some back bedroom. It was right there on the coffee table. And I gave into peer pressure and I started doing it. And I did a bunch that night. And I started setting all these vows in my life, right? I'll never know the guy's number. I'll never call the guy. I'll never do it by myself. I'll never pay for it. I'll never, all of those felt like dominoes. 
the whole time at work, I'm, I'm moving up through this, right? Like I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not the shipping manager anymore. Like I said, my dad worked there. Somebody complained that I got that job because of him, even though he stayed out of the discussions purposely for that. So they moved me to training program, executive deal. And I wound up working as an assistant manager in a store for a couple of years and then became an outside salesman and became very, very good at that. I was a, a fortune 250 salesman of the year, a couple of years in a row. I mean, it's <laughs> out of a thousand salespeople in a, in a huge company and, and just, man, was making a lot of money. Um, and my habits just kept going. I quit going to school. I started getting goose eggs. My dad said, not paying for that anymore. So, um, you know, I, I, I just went full time into this career as a salesperson and started to excel at it. Um, man, really, at this time, I, it was the loneliest part of my life. I was a chameleon among men. You know, from the outside looking in, I had everything. You know, I was single. I had cars, I had different girlfriends, I had, you know, all this stuff, I was womanizing all of that stuff, you know, and, and uh, everybody's like, man, that guy's got the, the world by the tail, but nobody knew how broken and lonely and shameful and guilty and disgusted I was with myself, because inside, I remembered the person I used to be. But I was just so into all this other stuff at the time. So me and this group of guys, we, we, it started to get to where every Friday night where we were going to go out and look for girls, we never went out. We'd stay up till five, six, seven in the morning doing cocaine, you know, go to sleep, you know, sleep through the day, go back and do it again the next night. Uh, I was a functioning drug addict, man. Like I could go to work and I was fine all day long, but five o'clock, man, it was time to go, go drink 15, 20 beers, you know, do a bag of Coke, smoke a pack and a half of cigarettes. So I was lonely in all of this time. So I found myself, you know, falling into a, a, a pornography uh, problem. Uh, a lot of the girls just quit coming around because when you're doing drugs, man, you're so worried that people are going to find out. So paranoid that you just quit doing things. You're basically spending your life on a couch, you know, doing this kind of stuff. So I've become very lonely in my life. And in this one week, um, my little sister came into town and none of my family knew. I mean, my parents knew I drank too much and things like that, but they weren't aware of anything else. Uh, my sister came in town. She was playing volleyball at Carson Newman college in Jefferson city, Tennessee. Uh, and she came in and wanted to see some of my friends. We went to this bar. We always went to on Friday night. And for some reason, everybody there that night was going to leave early. Um, and I was sitting there going, man, what are you doing? We got, I got the drugs. It's six 30. Why is everybody going home? You know, I thought we're, it's Friday night. And, and they all left. Well, my sister did too. A couple of minutes later, this girl comes in that knew my sister. And there was a girl at this other table that I knew from college. She actually dated a friend of my, one of my best friends for five years. I thought they were going to get married. I'd seen her a couple of times uh, in the past few weeks before this. And she just, I'd filled out at a goatee. I looked different uh, than the last time she saw me and she didn't recognize me. And I thought she was just being rude, you know, like, she never spoke to me. She spoke to all the other guys that were around at the same time as me in college with her. She didn't speak to me. So I see her and this girl comes over that knew my sister was with her. And she says, Hey, uh, John, it's good to see you. Uh, you know, is your sister Amy being around? I said, you know, you just missed her. We caught up about that for a second. And she says, Hey, uh, this girl over here wants you to come talk to her. And I looked over and I said, Angela, I said, what does she want? She goes, you know her? I said, yeah, I know her. And I've seen her three times lately. And she hadn't said a freaking word to me. Why, what does she want to say now? You know, she literally had come in. We were playing golden tee golf that night in the bar with like four of my buddies. And she said hi to every one of them, but me. And I'm going, what is her problem? So now she wants to talk. So she goes over and says something to Angela. I see her eyes get this big. 
because she starts to realize, oh man, that's John. And I've known him and he was a friend of my boyfriend's forever. She calls me over anyway. I go sit down. We start talking. I had two friends that were still left there and they were about to go to another bar. And so they came over and said, hey, we're going to drop this guy off. And we're going to go to this other place. I said, I'll go with you. And the guy looked at me and goes, no, I think you should stay. And I said, no, I'm going to go with you. Why would I stay? You're leaving. Why would I stay here? And he goes, I think you need to stay. And his name was Spanky. He looked like Spanky from the, <laughs> from the little rascals. And I said, Spanky, I'm going with you. And he goes, no, you need to stay. So next thing you know, I look over and I'm doing this and his neck's pointing at her, you know, and I said, do you want me to stay? And she said, yeah. Well, that was the night that I met my wife. Wow. Um, we started talking that night. It was, I never met any, I mean, I knew her before, but like, I never had a conversation like this and man, she was gorgeous. I mean, I was, I would have dated her in a heartbeat in college if my friend, you know, hadn't, you know, had a relationship with her. And even then in that moment, I'm going, my buddy's moved on. He's with a girl for five years. He's probably going to marry, but this is still like the, the, you know, the, the brothers before women kind of thing. Like, yeah. am I, am I intruding here? Anyway, we, we talk all night, you know, we have a few beers together. We go home. She gives me her number. The next night I call her, we go out and then we date for about a year and decide to get married. Now this whole time, you know, Dan, I'm thinking, okay, I got to stop. Like I'm, I'm in love with this woman and I've never felt this way. And I, I got to cut out all these drugs. And she knew that we had done that in college, you know, and, cause she was around for some of that stuff, but she uh, assumed at this time I was done with, you know, I'm 24 years old, 26 years old at this time, you know, and, and figured I was past it, but I wasn't. So we decided to get married and I'm thinking, this is it, right? Like, going to mature this is one of those life moments where you just magically you know pixie dust falls from the sky and you're different right yeah 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 because that's <laughs> what it, we think of when we get married you know yeah it's life, like life it's, will be perfect after that yeah everything's going to happen someday i'll change that's everything i thought about on the couch is you know this is normal people do this kind of stuff i'll get through it uh, you know we'll get she'll complete know, me right all of that so yeah so she says yes and we go to get married and we do and Man, I was doing cocaine all the way up to the marriage, you know, and after. And so not long goes by and I'm still doing this, you know, hiding it from her. And and uh, I would do enough to get the feeling, but not enough to be obvious. You know, something was wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, a year goes by and we decide, you know, or we decide we're going to have children. And, and when she comes to me one day and says, we're going to have a son, you know, I'm pregnant. And Dan, that was the greatest news I ever had in my life. I always wanted to be a father. I always wanted to be the best father I could. And I always wanted a boy and I was getting that yeah. all at once. And I was just jacked up about it. I'm going to teach him this and this and this. Oh yeah. And he was a joy of my life, but I was still doing the drugs. I didn't change for that. Right. Um, right in there. My mother had, a few years prior had found out she had breast cancer. So right at this time, Jacob was about a year old. Uh, I decided to go to a doctor's appointment with her in Memphis. I'd never been before to a doctor's appointment over the period my dad and, 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 and my mother had moved down to the farm they grew up on, still had a house in Midtown Memphis, but we're down there all the time. Their doctors were here in Memphis. So one day I'm on a sales call working at Napa and I said, yeah, I'm going to go see if they're still there and just say hi to them. I go in, I walk in the back and that was the day that the doctor came in and told my mother that she had a couple of weeks to live. Oh. The cancer had moved from her breast to her lungs, to her lymph nodes and now to her brain. Uh, it's the first time I ever saw my dad cry in my life. Um, I was devastated, man. I can't tell you what it's like to walk in a room and to just want to say hi to somebody and hear they're going to die. Oh. Um, yeah. Uh, all of a sudden, all of these Thanksgivings and holidays and things where my mother had begged me to stay longer. Um, 
were regrets because I had to get back to the party. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to miss what was going on. And so, um, man, I followed him back to their house in Midtown and my dad was going in there to get him some stuff to take down to the Mississippi. They were going to go down there to try to process all of this. And I get out and I go to the car door and I open it and I just crumble into my mother's lap. You know, she used to call me her cuddly duckling and I used to crawl up in her lap all the time I was a kid. I just fell into that same kind of place, you know, kneeling outside of the car and just laying on her and just sobbing, going, mom, is isn't fair. Mom, is isn't right. You know, she, she was a very holy person. She loved the Lord. She had done everything right in her life as far as her faith. And I just was crying. I was like, mom, I don't want to lose you. I don't want you to die. And she just kept telling me, John, I, I'm prepared for this. I, ever since the day they told me I had cancer, I prepared for this and I know where I'm going. And man, it just, I was torn up and I didn't want to hear that. Right. I didn't want to hear it. And you know, I knew my dad didn't want to talk. He came back to the car and my mom asked me to tell my sister. So I had to tell my sisters, you know, another oh. equally hard chore to, Hey, what are you doing, John? Uh, nothing. Mom's going to die, oh. you know? And so they pull out of the driveway and I'm standing there watching them go down the street. And I just turned towards this porch. They had a high rise porch and there was a lot of center blocks or decorative blocks that was built on. And I walked over there and man, I kicked that block as hard as I could probably wasn't the smartest thing to do at the time, but <laughs> Uh, I kicked it and I just remember looking up and saying, Lord, I hate you. I hate you. You know, I hadn't gone to church from the time I joined that fraternity until I met Angela. Angela was Catholic. She told me along the way that the man she was going to marry is me Catholic. I thought I was the man for the job and was chivalrous giving up my faith that I didn't even practice anymore to marry her. <laughs> and so I, I would go to mass under protest, but most of the time I didn't go at all because I was hung over. She felt I had sold her a bill of goods. Right. And, and wasn't the person I said I was. And Certainly she was right about that. Um, but in that moment, you know, I hadn't, didn't have a relationship with God for the longest time anyway. And I, when I heard he was, that my mother was going to die, I looked at it as he was taking her from me, Yeah. you know, and I really just said, God, like, how can you let someone that is good and someone that has, that has loved you without fail uh, in all of her life, how could you take her? And you let scumbag lying drug addicts like me get to live. Like, if that's the kind of God you are, I don't want anything to do with you. I'll never worship you again. I hate you. And I made what, what you know, people would call an, an unholy vow, right? Like a holy vow is your marriage or the, the, the virtuous things you choose to do. And then unholy vows are like, I'll never be like my father, you know, or I'll never love you, God, again. And those create wounds in us, right? And so... I was devastated. Um, I spent as much time as I could with my mother. I was angry that my son wouldn't get to know her because he was still, you know, a one year old. Yeah. <laughs> I would have no memories of her. I was angry about all that. And the only time I would ever let that stuff out was in the shower in the morning. I would blast music and just beat the shower and cry for a solid two minutes and then wipe the tears and get out and put on my mask and everything was okay. Angela knew something was wrong. She she saw the way I was acting out, you know, as bad as I was already, I just kicked it into overdrive and, you know, started doing, you know, $40 worth of Coke a night, which was a big bag of Coke from the guy I got it from drinking as many beers as I could get down at night, you know, using the same 12 pack box, but place replacing the beers in it. So Angela couldn't tell how much I was drinking all of that. Um, in the middle of all that, we, we decide we're going to have, or we, we find out we're going to have uh, another child. And in fact, two children. Uh, we had twins, Allison and Caitlin, oh. my nine-year-old girls. I was at the zoo with Jacob when she called and told me that she works at St. Jude and she had gone downstairs and somebody had ultrasounded her and 
she calls and says, I, I hear three, I hear two heartbeats. And I said, yeah, yours and the babies. <laughs> she goes, no, that would be three. I believe my first response is, do you know how much daycare is going to be? But, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, when we I, all I was say the, those things that come out of our mouth, we're only supposed yeah, to think them. <laughs> right. I was at the zoo with Jacob. Like I used to take him on Tuesdays because it was free and we'd go an hour after I picked him up from daycare and no one would be there. And so we're staying in front of this gorilla pit when she tells me, I'm like, yeah, two gorillas, two gorillas. And my son's like 40 yards walking off somewhere <laughs> just because I'm in shock. But I get home, you know, I embrace her and we're just like, man, what a gift. And, and, but again, like, all right, this is it. Now we're going to have three kids. My wife works full time. I've got this job. I've got to change, but I didn't, you know, I, I just said, I can handle this. Right. I got the world by the tail. I got a beautiful wife, got a house, got anything I want to buy. I, I'm the best salesman in my company. I like, I got everything. Cause that's what the world tells us. Right. That we so, gotta, so as much ego as you possibly could have, you have. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, you know, everybody's going to do this. No, nobody can even tell I'm going to work all day long and selling 20 times more than anybody else on our team here locally and, and taking care of my customers. I always did that. I always put them first, you know, and, and, and went about sales as if I take care of them, then I'll be taken care of. And that's how I grew a business that was successful for 23 years. So all that goes down. And I start one night, I'm sitting there and I picked up this customer that, that had five locations in Memphis, a tire store, and they were very, very um, needy. Uh, you know, they came from nothing, built a rags to riches story, but then they, they kind of forgot that. And so they wanted, everything was, had to be top tier and you better take care of me. I'm taking my business somewhere else. I'll get texts at night where they look at a price sheet wrong and then say, you know, blankety blank Napa and you, I'm taking my business somewhere else at nine o'clock, not answer their phone. And I'd sit there all night fretting that I was going to lose my, my job or lose my money because I was a hundred percent commissioned salesperson. You lose that kind of income. You're done. Like you're not making any money. So I really started just the stress. I was dealing with it through drugs and alcohol and pornography. My wife and I had become two ships passing in a night. She knew something was wrong. She knew that um, she, I had a good cover in my mother's death. So she thought that like, you know, this is just him trying to get through his mother, you know, passing, but it wasn't, it was me addicted to things. So this one night I'm sitting out there and, and it got to the point where Angel and I, again, we weren't being intimate. I was afraid to go back there and even try to be that way because, mm. because drugs affect yes. your body. Yes. And I was afraid that I would go back there a couple of times and not be able to perform the marital act. And, and she'd say, what's going on? Like, you know, are you cheating on me? Are you this, are you that, or am I? you know, all that stuff. So I just avoided, I stayed up as late as I could and made sure she was asleep and I went back to bed, but I still had urges. So yeah. I'd watch porn every night, you know, and, uh. and before I go to bed and this is where I was in my life. Well, one night about two in the morning, I'm sitting there on the couch and I got some baseball game played in the background. I didn't care about in case she walked up there. And I said, you know, I, I got to go to bed. Uh, I got up, I went back to bed and usually it took forever to go to sleep. But this night I went to sleep very quickly. And about 20 minutes after I've been asleep, I'm thrown up out of the bed. My heart feels like it's going to explode out of my chest. Um, and I look over, she's still sleeping. I, I crawl out of the bed, crawl to our master bathroom, pull myself up on the commode. And I feel like I'm going to die. Like my heart is just like this. And I thought, oh no, no, this is it. This is the after school special. This is, this is what you see. Like I've done it too long. I knew this day was going to come. And I thought I need to tell Angela to call an ambulance, but I, all I could tell myself inside was I'd rather die right here than face lose. I'm going to lose everything, right? She'll take the kids. She'll everything. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose everybody. Everybody's going to know. And so I grabbed a towel. I threw it in my face and I slowed my breathing and realized I was having a panic attack. 
And I was able to crawl back into bed. And I said, that's it. I'm done. I'm throwing all this out in the morning. And I did. I poured the alcohol out, threw the drugs out. But 4.30 in the afternoon, I was back buying the drugs and back buying the alcohol. Oh. The, next, the next night, the same thing happens again. Two in the morning, bed, up, heart busting out of my chest. And that night, I didn't want to, I, I felt like I wanted to crawl out to uh, call out to God, but I hated him, you know, and I wasn't going to do that. I was like, I'm not, I don't need your help, right? I know what your help looks like. And so I just, I say, look, I, I, I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to, but I know there's this men's, uh, you know, Catholic event coming up this weekend. My father-in-law was an uber Catholic. He had, you know, browed me, beat me into going to one five years before where Father Larry spoke. Uh, it's where I've met him the first time. And I, I, he gave me his book and I had written, you know, underlined things in there, like three pages are going to change my life that, you know, back in 2011. Well, here we were in 2017. And, uh, and I made my mind up. I said, you know, I've only been to confession one time and that was during RCIA and the 11 years I've been Catholic. Uh, maybe I'll go to confession and I can finally tell somebody the truth that can't tell anybody else. And so I go to this event. I don't even remember who the speakers are, but they've got, you know, 40 priests there to hear confession. I'm walking down this hallway and I'm doing the walk of shame. You know, I'm going, nope, I know him. Nope, I know him. Nope, I know him. Nope, I know him. <laughs> and I finally find one from Batesville, Mississippi that I didn't know. And I go in there and it's this crotchety priest. It's got a big, heavy set, older looks angry to be there sort of priest i'm like great shouldn't have picked door number one you know whatever <laughs> i go sit down i don't even know how to start confession you know and so he's looking at me well are you gonna go i was like are you gonna go you know because i didn't know what i was doing <laughs> <laughs> and so he tells me and we get started he's already annoyed and i just pour out my soul man i'm crying i'm telling him what a terrible dad i am because man, i talked horribly to angela everything was mine i was so selfish that's what drugs and all these things do these addictions, they feed on that innate selfishness that we all have. It was my money. It was my house. It was my this, my rules. I was just a jerk, you know, and, and I was a good dad when I wanted to be, which wasn't very often. So I pour all that out. And at the end of it, I say, I, I want to stop, but I don't want to get in trouble. And man, he loses it. And he's just like, what do you mean you want to get in trouble? This is about the mercy of God. And you better take this seriously. Da, 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 da. I was, I was like, all right, man, like, Last time I went to confession, Jesus was much nicer than you, you know, like, I don't, <laughs> and, and you know, I, he's angry and I get it. I said, look, I'm sorry. Like, what do I need to do next? And so he, he leads me through, you know, what I need to say. And he gives me absolution and I go home and I'm like, I'm going to change my life. I go home at Saturday night. I pour out the drugs, everything. And I'm good for four days. Now that next week was Holy week. And I did well, man, that first four days, it, it sucked. I'll tell you that. Like, I didn't realize how addicted I was until I stopped. I, I was gut wrenching. I, I would pull over at like four in the afternoon and throw up because my body was so used to like four thirty, five o'clock. It's time to, it's time to party, right? We're going to get the stuff. When I would tell myself that I wasn't going to go to the dealer, I would just wretch, you know, like my body would just react. Like, what do you mm -hmm. mean? We got to have that. So I make it to uh, Thursday, you know, Holy Thursday. Customer calls me. I'd had a, a, a bid in for them for about $250,000 of equipment to expand their shop. And he called that day and said, I want it, you know, bill it. And I was going to make more money on that sale than I made all year long. And so I, I run down there, I build the invoice, get him to sign it, call my boss. And I'm driving up 55 back to Memphis from Mississippi in my territory. And, and I'm thinking, I, I'm going to celebrate. Well, that celebrate for me meant drugs, meant alcohol. So I, I called the dealer about 30 times. He didn't answer. I was supposed to be going to get my son, Jacob, or my father-in-law on the other side of Memphis. I get almost over there and he calls back and I U-turn and I go back down there. 
I pull up, I run in, I get $40 worth of cocaine, I come outside, look down and notice that my gas gauge is on zero. I had a digital gas gauge at zero and I was not in a nice part of town. So I pull up to stop sign and I, I turn and I gun it down to try to get this gas station. I pull up at the pop. I go, all right, I made it. Good. All of a sudden I hear whoop, whoop. And I look up behind me and the DEA is in a Tahoe behind me. Oh, They've been man. watching his house. So they grab me out of the car, throw me up against it, start yelling, where are the drugs? They pull them out, find them in my sock, throw me in the back of a Tahoe. And I'm on my way down to organized crime to get interrogated. You know, they tell me I'm going to get out. They're going to let me go if I'll just help them, all that stuff. That They were just trying to get me to, to squeal on the guy and all that stuff. You know, I wouldn't help. So they wound up um, putting me in another cop car to go downtown. I was actually with a guy that was in my fraternity who had, who had been arrested that same day. Huh. We wound up in the same car going down there. So we pull up. There's these two officers. One's a young uh, white guy. Another one's a young African-American guy. And, and they're not happy because they were about to get off work. And now they're in this long line waiting to drop off, you know, prisoners. Memphis is, is a, a crime ridden city. So there's no shortage of people being brought to jail every day. We're in this line and uh, the guy looks in the rearview mirror and he says, Hey man, you don't look like you've ever been in trouble in your life. And I said, I hadn't, man, I just made some bad choices. And I, I'm so sorry that I've done that. And all I want to do is call my wife. It's been three hours since I was supposed to pick up Jacob. So I knew she was like, is he dead? What's going on? Why can't I get a hold of him? So the police officer says, man, I've got your phone in the trunk. If you want me to call her, we can call her. And I just looked at him and I said, I'm worried about what, what she's going to say. I'm worried about what she's going to do. And he said, well, is this about her? Or is it about you? And, you know, Dan, as I look back at the story, I could see the places where God was. And he was certainly in that cop. And he was showing me hmm. like your whole life's been about you. You know, your whole life's been about you. Like, when's it not going to be about you? Look at where being about you has got you. So he pulls my phone out of the trunk. He puts it to my ear. I call her. She answers. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Where are you? John, where are you? Everybody's been looking for you. Are you hurt? Are you okay? And I said, Angela, I'm in the back of a police car on the way to downtown Memphis. Um, I mean, on the way to prison in downtown Memphis, I, I'm, I got arrested for the possession of cocaine. There was silence. And she said, John, I hate you. And she hung up the phone Oh, and I didn't blame her. I mean, she knew something was going on and she had her answer, you know, and all only thing that gave me solace was like, she knew I wasn't dead, but I had to turn my mind into I'm going into one of the, the jail in one of the most dangerous cities in the, in the country. So they take me in there that you got to take off your belt and all that stuff. They put you in these cattle shoot looking things that open up into a drunk take room where they bring everybody. I'm sitting in there watching guys fight. Well, I saw a guy get stabbed. I saw deputies beat down a guy, like all kind of crazy stuff. You know, it's four in the morning. I'm getting a mug shot. I hadn't slept. I'm still in my work clothes. You know, it's starting to get real. Like I'm not getting out of this, right? I'm a sales guy. I get out of everything, but I'm not getting out of this, you know, especially when I'm holding the mug shot and doing the law and order stuff. So four in the morning, they call me back and they say, you know, go get in that line. Um, you've got, you're, they're going to give you your, your stuff in here, you know, your toilet paper, your blankets, your scrubs, all that. So there was a phone there. They told me I could make a phone call. I called Angela at four in the morning. She said, John, I know where you are. I don't care. I've got to get to work and take the kids to school. You can rot in there. Hangs up the phone. I go over there. I get scrubs. I'm, I'm worried they're not going to have shoes that fit because I wear a size 16. And miraculously, right. they did. <laughs> I'm like, I can't find shoes at the store, but you guys got them in here. That's crazy. So I get in this line and they take me down to this cell block and that's where it got real. You know, I didn't go to some cush floor where people were playing checkers. I was in, you know, a cell block and 
I go down to the end, the, the, I watch the door open. I step in and see this bunk bed of nasty stains and all this and a stainless steel to mm. toilet in a six by six room. Mm. I turn around with all my stuff in my hand and, and cause they tell us to, and I see this door just do, 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 boom. And hear that lock close. I'm like, that's it. My life's over. You know, for the first time since I'm a kid, I can't go where I want to go. I can't eat when I want to eat. I, if I want to go to the bathroom. I got to do it in front of God and everybody. So I turned around. I was exhausted. I'd been up for, you know, 24, 28 hours at this time. I, I'll turn around, look at this nasty bed. I throw a blanket down. I crawl on the blanket. I throw one over me. And by the grace of God, I passed out face down on the bed. Well, the next morning I wake up a couple hours later and I'm like, oh my gosh, thank God, this is a dream. I'm still under this blanket. You know, it's a nightmare. I'm going to quit. Thank you for this wake up call. I'll never do this again. I sit up, my head hits the bottom of a steel bunk bed and the covers fall off. And I realize I'm in jail. Mm. I throw my legs over the side of the bed. I start rocking back and forth and going, no, 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 no. This is like, this isn't happening. This isn't happening. I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to lose my wife, my kids, my job, my house, everything. Everybody's going to know. Everybody's going to know. I thought I was going to have a heart attack, man. Like that, that heart started beating again. There was guys staring at me from the other side of the cell block. And I'm just going, no, 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 no. And thinking about how this house of cards that I had built was going to fall apart. And then the, the craziest things happened, Dan, like this, this peace came over me that I cannot explain and should not have had in the moment. All of a sudden I stopped rubbing, my heart slows down and I just put my head down and I start tearing up. And the truest things I've ever said came out of my mouth. I just said, at least now I don't have to lie anymore. At least now everyone will know who I am. You know, I carried that burden for 17 years of my life of hiding a secret you know, building a house of cards. And dude, when you, people ask me all the time, what's the worst part about addiction? There's a lot of bad things, but one of the worst things is the lying because you never remember what you've told anybody. People would come up to me and say, Hey, John, there day when you said, and I would just freeze. I'm like, what did I say? What did I do? What if I tell them I was somewhere different than I was? Or what if all of that? So all that fell off of me and I just began to cry. And I said, like, how did I get here, man? Like, how did my life wind up here? This is not who I was supposed to be. And my mind went right back to that day I joined the fraternity and the day that I stopped going to church and I left Jesus behind in my life. And so I started to cry and I started to remember what I said to him at my parents' house. And I started to remember all the times I told him I hated him and the things I'd said to him. And I just hit my knees in that jail cell day. And I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. I, I, you have done nothing but try to be there all my life. And I've done nothing but run from you. And look what it's gotten me. I've tried my way and look what it's gotten me. And Lord, if you, if you will love me again, I know that I'm not worth it. I know I'm not, I'm dirty and I'm broken and I'm, I'm so pitiful. And, 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 but if you'll have me, I'm yours. Like I'll do whatever you want. If you will just allow me to a chance to be with my wife and kids, if, if, if you'll make Angela not leave me, if I will do whatever you want to do, my life is yours. And I hit my knees and I gave my life to Jesus in that cell that day. And I got back up and I sat down and I began to think, all right, I can't control what's going on now. Like, I don't know when I'm getting out of here. I'm, nothing's in my control. But what is in my control is, is praying and talking to God and building this relationship again and, and starting to figure out how I'm going to be different. Well, shortly after that, the, the door opened, you know, to the cell and I kind of stick my head out. And I'm like, is this a malfunction? Should I make a run for it? Like, I don't know. <laughs> right, right. Is this a jailbreak? Like, I don't know. And and the bailiff comes down as a female bailiff, you know, which I thought was odd on a male cell block. But she said, look, you and you, you have 30 minutes, phone call and a shower. Well, I 
seen a lot of prison movies, quite frankly. I wasn't really interested in the shower part. So <laughs> I figured I'll go, I'll go take the phone call. Well, the phone situation was a box with a speaker with no headset. So I'm sitting there trying to figure this out with all these people yelling at each other and noise. I call everybody I know. I can't hear anything. I get the, the guy next to me in the cell block reaches out, gives me an empty toilet paper roll. I put it to my ear and put it to the phone and, and I can hear another moment where God was there through somebody I completely didn't expect him to show up at. You know, I thought that this guy could have shivs me, you know, from yeah. as close as I was standing to his shell and he hands me a thing and helps me. So I call everybody, all those brothers for life in my fraternity, nobody would answer the phone. All the oh, money man. I'd spent, all the things I'd done for them, nobody would answer the phone. Lonely, lonely, lonely feeling. I finally get a hold of my sister at my dad's and she says, John, we know where you are. We know what's happened. Angela's across the street trying to bail you out. Um, <laughs> I, she's not going to let you come home. She's going to go to her parents. But, uh, you, you know, we're going to come get you. I'm going to come get you, take you to your house to get clothes. And then we're going to take you to dad's because she doesn't want you to come home. You have a court date Monday. So I was relieved to hear that. I went back to sell a few minutes later. They tell me I have a visitor and I, I walk out and it's a law and order scene with the glass and the payphone and all that. And it's my wife and my mother-in-law. They're crying. I start crying immediately. I start saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And Angela just puts a hand up and she says, stop. She said, I'm not going to divorce you, but it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the vows I made to God in the church that day. And all I heard in the moment was, I'm not going to divorce you. And, and literally, that's all I cared about, right? Like, I was just like, okay, my mother-in-law was crying, but I don't know if it was tears of hate or tears of sorrow or whatever. She says, look, you're going to come home. I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be at the parents. You're going to hit your clothes. You're going to go to your dad's. I said, okay. Like, you know, I didn't have much say in the matter, right? So I go back about nine o'clock that night on Good Friday. I come out of jail. So mm -hmm. I've gone in on Holy Thursday. I come out on Good Friday. I go outside to look for my sister and it's not my sister. It's my father. Oh, now, you know, you and I talked about my father in the beginning. Yeah. So you can imagine even at, I guess he was probably 78, 79 years old then, you know, I'm well bigger than him, you know, six, eight, two seventy-five. but I'm walking up like a little kid that broke something in the house, you know, and I'm waiting for that chastisement, a slap in the face, maybe something. And I walk up and I said, dad, I, I, and I looked up and he just looked at me and he smiled and he said, I love you. Oh. He put his arms around me and he pulled me to him and he said, are you all right? He said, let's go, son. Let's get in the, let's get in the car and, and let's go to your house and let's make our way back to the farm. It's late. So I get in the car, I realize I got a bazillion calls from work, you know, and I know some of they must've found out, you know, and they did, I was in some just busted magazine. Somebody saw and ratted me out to everybody. So now I had to call my boss and they told me, go to your dad's come here after your court date and we'll figure out what we got to do. So I go to my dad's that Sunday. I had the greatest desire I think I've ever had in my life to go to mass. All I could think about was how my Italian wife was going to be with her huge Italian family. And when she walked into the house, all the roar of noise would go silent and it would, there would be the elephant in the room. And that was just weighing on me so tremendously. So I wound up asking my dad, I said, can I borrow your car? You know, can I go to mass? There was a small Catholic room in this town of Bruce, Mississippi. And he said, yeah, I'd been there once before with Angela at Christmas when she made me go. And so we go, I, I drive down there. My dad's not Catholic. So I went by myself. I pull up and nobody's there. It's Easter Sunday. And I'm going, really, God, really? Nobody's here. So all of a sudden this nun pulls up, the, the sister that had helped there because they had a traveling priest. So she did a lot of things that when he wasn't there. And she saw me beating the steering wheel and stuff, right? I thought I was nuts and said, what are you doing? I said, I just want to go to mass. 
And she said, we're down the road, right? We're down the road at the 4-H club. Um, it's, you know, we're, we're, it's too many people here. So we had to go down there. So I go down there, this priest that had been there the night that Angel and I went one time before gave the homily. It was amazing. And I decided right then and there, I'm going to be a different man. And so I get up to leave and I grab the door and I'm walking out the door and this hand hits my shoulder. And I'm like, who's touching me? I don't know anybody in here. And it's this priest. And I turn around, he says, hello, John. He remembered my name oh. five years before. And I said, father, you know, and he goes, I don't know why your family's not here or where they are, but I want you to know that God told me to tell you everything's going to be all right. <laughs> and I just was like, how do you, how could you know? And he turns and he said, I hope to see you again soon. And he walks off. They're having a potluck and he goes and disappears in the crowd of people. I walk out to my dad's car and I'm like, what the hell? You know, excuse my French, but I'm like, what, what just happened? And I made my mind up right then and there, like, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to be different. So we drove up to Memphis the next day. I went to court. Uh, there was a Catholic judge in town and he doesn't like sentencing people back to jail. He wants to give people a chance to, to better themselves. So I got put on a program called diversion and I had to go to parole hearings every month and take drug tests. And, and after a year, we go off my record. So I did that. I went to work right after that. And they had a list of questions, you know, and they were all, all the HR people and all that, you know, did you do it at work? Have you done it here? This, this, that, and that. And I was yes and knowing all the answers. Sounds like the Pete Rose thing. Did you yeah. bet on baseball? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> as long as you didn't and, bet but, on baseball. That's right. Okay. So in that moment, you know, I was just like, I, I don't care if I lose my job. You know, I've been here 23 years. I've never been in trouble. If you want to fire me, fire me. But I would made my mind up that I was going to go down to the behavioral science center and check myself in to prove to my wife that I was serious about getting better. I had not talked to her since Friday night at the jail. So my dad takes me down to this place called Lakeside. I go in and one person they bring in is worse than the next, man. There's guys on meth scratching their skin off and bleeding because they think bugs are on them. Their parents have got them by the pants, just throwing it, take them. This is the 12th time I'm done. I made my dad go sit in the car and I'm sitting there in this room with the door where people keep coming in over my right shoulder. And I pick up a newspaper that was there. It was like a gift from God to be able to just put it up and not even read it, but not have to look at this anymore. Well, people kept walking by and all of a sudden the door opened and nobody walked by. The paper didn't move or anything like that. And I lowered the paper and I looked up and it was my wife. Oh, wow. And I said, Angel, what are you doing here? How did you know I was here? And she said, John, I'm mad as hell at you, but I can't let you go through this alone. Oh, and so she sits there with me holding my hand until they call me back to be assessed. And then the lady's telling her, you know, I need to be, you know, a 30 day outpatient. And my wife's like, no, put him under the place, you know, <laughs> let it put him as deep in this place as you can and fix him, you know? And I'm like, Angel, she's a professional. She probably knows what she's talking about. So I went in this 30 day outpatient program and, you know, I was off work until after that. So I get home that, well, I don't know where I'm going. Right. So my dad's going to have to drive me two hours a, one way a day to go to this rehab center for 30 days. Cause I'm not allowed to go home. So Angel and I are walking out and I'm just telling her, I can't believe the type of woman that she is and why, you know, why are you here and all that? And I'm like, where's my dad? How am I going to get home? And she said, John, I told him to go home. I'm not going to make him drive up here every day. The kids need you. Allison to ask the other day, if you're dead, she was three years old. My three year old, oh. I know if I was dead cause she hadn't seen me in four days. So I go home that night and man, I get in my bed and I'm like, king of the hill right i got air conditioning i'm not eating pig slop there's tv like you know and, and angela told me i'm not gonna sleep in the bed with you i can't man like i gotta you know we gotta i'm gonna be in jacob's room so his room was right across from ours and his bed i could see from my side of the bed 
So I'm sitting there all fat and happy because I'm home again. And I look over and I realize there's nobody in the bed with me. And I started to realize I can't just stop doing drugs and alcohol. I got to be different, you know? And so I start to look for a Catholic Bible. I look for a Bible, any kind of Bible on my side of the room. I can't find it. I probably should have looked on hers. There's like 40 of them over there, but I pull the drawer open next to me and I find Father Larry's book from 2011 that I'd started underlining. And I read that book from cover to cover that night and started figuring out what it meant to be a man. Angela got up in the morning and said, what are you doing up so early? I said, I never went to sleep. I read this book and Angela, I'm going to be the man you deserve. And and then for that year after that, I read scripture like it was going out of style and all these Baptist roots. I mean, we read the Bible six times before we were 13, had sword drills. I could quote Bible verses to you all day long. And all of that started coming back to me. I started going to church every day. There was a priest where I walked in there one day, hiding from the world that saw me crying in the church and took me to the confessional and, and, and heard my story and has walked with me from that day ever since, mm. you know, he asked me that day to be a lector. He told me to come to confession once a week. He, he asked me to come to daily mass every day, saved my life, gave me the Eucharist after that. And it was the first time I really believed it was the body of, of Christ was in that moment. So I started reading 70 Catholic books. I'm going about my life. Nobody knows what's going on. I've gotten involved in the parish coaching and all these things and the men's club, but none of those guys know what's going on. Come back to that men's conference a year later. And I go, and this time I'm like excited to go. And, you know, I'm living my faith now, at least. Angel and I aren't completely healed. We're still getting through things, but but I'm, I'm a better man than I, I have ever been in a while. So I go to this event, Father Mike Smith spoke, and then there was a witness speaker that was a focus missionary that had a similar story, and he told it. And I just was like, oh, my gosh, this courage and this bravery of this young man to get up there and share all this. So I find him, I talk to him, I tell him that, you know, our stories are similar. Well, that night we had a fundraiser at our parish, and it was a three-point shootout. And I went up there with my son, and there was another guy that had been there that day and went to confession for the first time in 16 years. And he was going nuts, man. He was running around the place, man, I feel awesome. And I can't believe like, man, I went to confession today. Whoa. You know, and he's telling everybody all, everything he did in confession. I'm like, Hey Jay, some of that stuff, there's women and children here, man. Like you, you need to quit yelling. And he's like, dude, I don't understand why I feel like this. And I said, well, you, you've had a, a experience with the Holy spirit. I'm cradle Catholic man all my life. I don't know anything about the spirit. I know God and Jesus. What are you talking about? So he starts asking me, I start to tell him and the devil hits me in the back of the head. And he's huh. like, man, uh, who do you think you are? You cokehead? You're gonna sit here and tell anybody about how to live their life yes, and what yes, Jesus is? Imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so I told him, I said, Jay, there's a couple of priests here. I'm sure they're too busy to talk about it tonight, but I'm sure they'd set up a time to talk to you. No, man, I want you to talk to me. I'm sorry, I, I'm understanding what you're saying. You know, you're doing it in a real way. I said, I don't want to. And he kept hammering me and hammering me. And finally, he said, Can I take you to dinner Tuesday night? I said, Yeah. So I go home and tell Angela, and she's like, really, you're going to, what are you going to do? Like, no one knows. What are you going to tell them? And I said, Angela, I've been studying and all this stuff's coming back to me. I don't know. But I sat down after church that Sunday and I wrote out like six pages on a legal pad. We went and ate at a pizza place Tuesday night. I had books everywhere. I looked like a lawyer when he showed up, you know, and I'm like, let's go. And I took him from the Holy Spirit, from the breath over the water, all the way to Pentecost. And when I was done, he's like, man, this is amazing. How do you know all this? I said, I don't know. I just do. And he goes, you got to start a men's group. And I said, dude, I can't, <laughs> can't, sorry. No, not my thing. I told you I'd do this. That's it, man. This was the deal. And uh, he's like, no, dude, why, why do you always say no? And I felt convicted by spirit. And I told him everything I just told you. And I went blah. And I expected him to get up and say, check, please. You know, and next thing you know, he looks at me and he says, uh, 
you know, he says, man, that's amazing. You should start a men's group. So <laughs> I'm going to do something wrong with you. Did you not hear what I said? Like I was just arrested on a felony, you know, drug charge a year ago. I'm probably not the person who needs to be leading a men's group. He convinced me. A week later, we called 30 men in the parish, didn't tell them what we were doing, just called them to a room. And I showed up that night to tell my story. I knew I had to. Ansel wasn't real happy about it, but I just felt the Lord convicting me to do it. I walk up to the door to, to grab the door to walk in that room. And as soon as my hand hits the handle, I hear the devil go, what are you doing? You're going to lose everything. You go in there and you do what you're going to do. You're going to lose all those friends. All these people that don't know you, they're going to talk about you. Your kids are going to get kicked out of this parish when they find out of school, when they find out you, you're an ex-drug user. You know, you're going to get kicked out of this parish. Think how embarrassed your wife's going to be staying with a loser like you. All that stuff. And I let go of the door. And I started to walk back to the parking lot. Ooh. And I got about two steps. And I heard that small whisper say, John, you told me you were going to be different. You told me when you walked out of that cell, you were going to be different. It was like the whisper you hear in the Old Testament. God's not in the earthquake or the storm. He's yeah. in the whisper. And so I turned around, I opened that door, and I walked in there. And all the guys were grumbling. What are we doing here, man? Why are we here? And, and I just said, look, guys, we have a great men's club. We cook barbecue and raise money and all that stuff. But we never talk about Jesus. And let me tell you what could happen in your life when, when that's the case. And I just went blah. And I just regurgitated everything I said um, just to you right now. And I was crying and, and scared to death. And at the end of it, I said, look, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I think we need a men's group here where we could talk about our struggles. I can't be the only one that struggles. And I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to start one if you want to be a part of it. But if you want to leave, I get it. You didn't know why you were here. This is an entrapment. You can go. And I sat down, man. And I'd given everything I had. I was <laughs> sobbing and Next thing you know, Jay, the guy who asked me to go to dinner, stands up. And I'm like, surely you're not the one leaving. You're the one that got me into this mess. <laughs> like, you know? And he, I look up and he's crying. And he says, I'm a terrible father. I care more about my job and my money and my work than I do my family, by the way, I spend my time. And he sits down and the next guy says, I'm addicted to pornography and my wife's going to leave me. The next guy gets up and says, I'm getting a divorce and none of you know it. Next guy, I'm smoking pot and doing pills all the time. Oh. My wife's going to leave me. The, the next guy stands up and says, I'm drunk right now. I Ubered here. My wife and I have nine kids. We fight a lot. I escape. She stays at the house. She thinks I'm at work. I've been in a hotel room all day. I've had a case of beer. I came up here. I Ubered here because I thought we were going to have more beer. And he said, <laughs> and my work thinks I'm at home sick. All the way around this room, pistons in an engine, like guys getting up, sitting down, telling their sins. And that's the night that God showed me vulnerability in my life. And that's the night that I, I, we started a men's group in Memphis, Tennessee at Holy Rosary Catholic Church and what really launched this ministry. You know, we've been meeting every Wednesday night for six years, except for the week of Christmas and Thanksgiving, showing up and doing life together with a bunch of men. You know, you know, Dan, I know I've talked a long time and I'm sorry for taking. No, so long, no, but, no. But it's, you know, vulnerability with men. We think that that means that we're weak. Right. Like my father used to say, put your head down, never complain, don't don't, you know, work hard, don't need anybody. And so we walk through life like this one man army that, that, that can't tell anybody anything because it means we're weak, right? The world has that definition of vulnerability, which is, is, you know, you're weak, you're susceptible to attack, you're less masculine, all those things. But God has a different definition and he gives it to St. Paul. You know, he tells St. Paul when St. Paul says, remove this thorn from my side, right? Three times. And God says each time, no, my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so St. Paul goes on to say, once he learns that lesson, that if I'm to boast, let me boast of only my burdens, my hardships, my difficulties, because when I'm weak, I'm strong. And what it means, vulnerability, there's power and strength in vulnerability. It's not our strength, it's God's. 
But when we humble ourselves, right, when we're brought to that moment to say, I can't do it anymore, my life's out of control, right? Whether it's anger issues or, or porn or addictions of other kinds or anything in your life that's a sin that you get mired down in those, those habitual and repetitive sins, we have to humble ourselves and become vulnerable in three ways, really, with ourselves, we have to admit we have a problem. I knew I had a problem on that couch every single night, but I never admitted it. Oh, other people do this. I'll be okay. Look at my life. I came to grips with that in that jail cell that I, the place I'd gotten myself, I had no way out. That Jesus was the only one that could do something for me that I could not do for myself. And so I was vulnerable in that moment. And then I went to the confessional with that priest and I was vulnerable with him, with God. And I received his mercy and his forgiveness, which so many men run from because we look at God is this punishing, angry God, but he's not. He's this father, like in the prodigal son. I was the guy in the pig. I was the son that was in the pig slop, covered in the pig crap and the, the food and all that stuff, who walked my way home, who stood up that one day and said, even my father's servants have it better than I do. Yeah. Right. Who went home and that father wasn't standing there with a switch or with a chastisement. He was standing there at that, on that, looking down that road at the horizon, waiting day by day for his son to return to him. And when he did, the father didn't go, go take a shower, right? He didn't say, I don't want you here. He ran down there and he said, he celebrated, right? He, he takes his, his, his finest robe and puts it on him. He gives him his finest ring. He embraces him. He calls for the slaughter of the fattened calf. And he hugged him in all of that dirtiness and that shame and that guilt and that disgustingness. And he welcomed him home. And that's what vulnerability does for us. That's what God wants to do for us. He's not a, a, a guy that's standing with his back turn to you in disgust. He's waiting for you to turn back to him. He's not the one that leaves us. We're the ones that leave him. And the devil lives in that, Dan. Like he gets in those wounds and he says, you know what? Look at what you've done. Look at who you are. God can't love you. You really think he wants you back? And so I was in a, a physical prison cell, a mortar and bars and all these things, Dan. But like every one of us is walking around in a virtual prison cell with four walls made up of our own shame, guilt, mistakes, failures, all that stuff. And every time you try to reach for that door, the devil pokes and prods in those wounds. They really are like wounds. He goes up, oh, you go out that door, they're going to find out about your porn problem. You go, you go do what you're going to do. They're going to find out about the way you talk to your wife, about how you drink, about all this other stuff. And so you let go of that door and he convinces you it's comfortable in there, right? Out there's nothing but pain and torture and loss. But when you become vulnerable, man, with yourself, God, and other men, which I did in that group that night and still do to this day, then when he comes back, when you grab that door and he shoves his finger in that wound, that wound's not there anymore, right? Because you've shared it with the people that it matters, with yourself, with God, and with other people. And you found out that they didn't leave you. They didn't abandon you. They accepted you for who you are. And you realize that your strength comes from God and that your purpose is a beloved son of God. That's who you are. That's what your identity is. Not what you do, not what you have, any of that other stuff. You don't have to earn it. You're worthy simply because God says so. To be vulnerable, the root word of, the, uh, of vulnerability is vulnus in Latin. That means wound. That literally means wound. So we become vulnerable. We rip that wound off and we let the divine healer heal it. And that's what he's done in my life. So I started this group and then people in the diocese started coming to it from all over. We had a bunch of Protestants start coming and they converted because they found a place to be real and authentic where men would accept them for who they are. And they were looking for that all their life. So I had a deacon here that has a show on EWTN, a radio show called the Catholic Cafe. It's Deacon Jeff Brzezinski. He came up to me in a Crucial group one night and said, I want you to do what you're doing on a podcast. And I thought, man, get out of here. I have no idea how to do that. Who wants to listen to me? 
And he said, I think a lot more people than what you would think. He said, what would you call it? And I said, just a guy in the pew. And he said, how did you come up with it that quick? I said, that's what the old women in church when I go every day would come up to me and ask if I am on the seminary or am I a deacon? And I'd say, no, I'm, a, I'm just a guy in the pew. <laughs> and that's where that name came from. But Dan, we started doing that. We started doing episodes. We've now got the podcasts listened to in over 150 countries around the world. You know, we've got 160 something episodes. We do interviews with all these folks. I travel the country and speak. We do parish missions. And right now, God's got us squarely focused on using some materials we have called the Narrow Road, which is a virtue-based program that men can get involved in. And then we go to parishes and help start groups like we started at Holy Rosary. And it's changing parishes. You know, when we started that group, the women got inspired. They started groups. The children got inspired. The youth group grew. And our parish transformed. And so that's what I want to do with my life. I want to give back to the Lord because he has done so much for me. Yes. And yes. so there's my story. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. To, I'm glad I was able to finish that very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so a couple of quick takeaways, I can't hit on yeah. every point, but like, sure. as soon as we think we're so far away that we're not recoverable in your story, God's like, Hey, come on, man. Come on, man. I got you. I got you. Like so many yeah. different instances throughout that. It's like, no, it's okay. I re- yeah. You did make some mistakes, but you're still mine. You're still a son of God. So wherever you yeah. are in your journey, like it doesn't matter. God's, God's going to take you back. So yeah. I know I've been at spots in my life where I thought, man, I've been gone too long or I've been away too long or made too many mistakes or whatever. Yeah. And once you realize that if you just listen, if you just believe, if you just trust God's there, you know, the first yeah. time I came back to church after I'd been gone for a while, of course, it was the prodigal son. And of course, the homily was, sure. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was the only one in the pew. There wasn't a soul in this 1200 person church. It was only me and him. Yeah. <laughs> of course, there was 1100 other people there. However, sure. it felt like it was just me sure. and him. But uh, <laughs> well, that's yeah. the that's my favorite line in that parable is when it says the father saw the son coming from a long way off and rushed out to meet. Him. Oh, and, and when you're getting out of the jail and your dad's there. Yeah. And what's yeah. the thing you want them to say most in your whole entire life? Yeah. And instead of saying, man, you, you messed up, you messed right. up. Instead of saying that, he says, son, I love you. Yeah. Oh. And that's the thing, man, is, is like you said, I mean, if you argue with God about your worth, you're the one who's wrong because he loves you and he's never going to stop loving you. And there's never anything you can do to, to lose his love because you didn't earn it. It was a free gift and it's a gift that he's going to give you constantly in your life. And it's just like us, you know, our kids do things that disappoint us. Doesn't mean we hate them. Doesn't mean we're going to abandon them. We're going to kick them out of the house. It just means that we're disappointed and we hope that we can help them right the ship. And that's what God wants to do in our life because each and every one of us has a purpose. And until we realize that our identity is a beloved son of the father, not what I do, not what I produce, not what I have, then our whole life is going to be a constant search for what am I doing here? What's the purpose of all of this? And that's how we find ourselves falling into vice and all these other things is because God has kept a piece of our heart for himself. And he knows one day we're going to come looking for it. And when we find it and we put it back, then that's when we start to figure out who we are. You know, I had a lot of gifts as a salesperson. Those gifts weren't for selling auto parts. Those gifts were for, for helping people to come find the Lord. And I have that purpose in my life and my life is full of joy. Do I struggle? Yes. Am I broken? Yes. Does my wife think I need to listen to what I preach a lot? Yes. You know, but we've healed our relationship and I now have, I make less money than I've ever made in my life, but I'm more joyful than I've ever been because I'm living in my gifting and I'm living in the purpose that God gave me. 
and I'm bringing other people to him. And that is what he made us for. And when we could find that uniquely find that doesn't matter if it's helping at the soup kitchen, it doesn't matter if it's being a good, an excellent father, whatever it is that he's calling you to, that's where you're going to find your joy. And that's where you walk away from vice and towards virtue, which is what we need to get to heaven. So two things, yeah. when, when you're young, you're talking about basketball and a stress reliever. Mm -hmm. shooting a bunch of shots, being in the zone, way to get away from yeah. things. Then later on, you mentioned as a stress reliever, I did some cocaine and like really went crazy with it. Like sure. I really took it to yeah. another level. So guys, whatever the stresses are in your life, find a healthy way, find a healthy outlet. Yeah. And a lot of it can be talking to another guy. A lot of it can be in a faith group. A lot of it can be talking to God and asking for forgiveness. It can yeah. be working out. It can be all these different things, but if you're turning to drugs, alcohol, pornography, any of those things, yeah, stop for a second and go, is that, is that the way I want to stay? Do I want to stay in this lane? Do I want to get really good in this lane or do I want to go try something new, try something different? So yeah, I'm going to encourage you to try something different. John's lived it. John's telling you where you're going to end if you go that road and get really good at that side of it. So uh, if you know somebody that needs to hear this message, share this podcast all over the place, share John's words with them. Um, and he, he does have a cool program. He does have a cool program. I was hoping we were going to get to talk a little bit about Nimrod today too, but we don't have. Yeah. Time. Oh have yeah. Time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry but, uh, about that. We'll do it again. Yes. Right? Yes. That story is just, you back. that story is hard to calm down once it gets going. Absolutely. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, yeah. But he's, he's got a, a narrow road uh, group. It's a monthly subscription thing. That's super cool. I'll drop a link in the comments to, or in the uh, show notes to it. Um, but guys, oh my goodness. It's, uh, John. So I, I was like shaken and <laughs> emotional and yeah. I was ready to curl up in a ball and cry like you were talking. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it, it was a rough ride, man. But you know, the, the other point I want to make real quickly is guys, we're all going to suffer. And, you know, as Catholics, you know, we were taught and we should really believe that suffering is an invitation to grow. You know, I try to look at it when I'm going through things in my life that are tough, that God is trying to move me from one place to the other, right? It's not, it's not a punishment. It's not a chastisement. I mean, just like with Job, right? I mean, God is the answer to suffering, right? That's, that is the answer to our suffering. And so he wants us to come closer to him. And when we suffer through things, there's a purpose to it. You know, Ansel and I easily could have said, you know what, this was a terrible part of our life and just kept it to ourselves. But my wife was a strong enough person to realize that the suffering was not just to suffer. It was to help other people. God's using this example of my life to help so many others. And what an honor it is to look at suffering that way. You know, we're not going to have a suffering free life. And, and so if you look at it as, man, God's calling me as an opportunity to grow closer to him uh, and to maybe rid myself of some things in my life, uh, to cleanse myself of some things. We flip that perspective on, on, on suffering and, and we really start to find the purpose of it and, and to see the good in it, uh, and even pray for it, right? A lot of saints prayed to suffer. <laughs> so there's that. And then one more thing I'll tell you, Dan, real quick <clears throat> is for guys that are, they're here in the negative guys that are, um, that were really going to, to, to struggle with the negative things they're hearing in their life. Um, you, there's always two voices in your head, right? I mean, how many times in a day have you sat there and you felt like you've had a conversation with somebody all day and you've never said a word because it's in your head, right? Yes. And it's that negativity of you're, you're not good enough. You'll never be the one you can't, God can't love, you know, all of those, you, those accusatory yous. 
I heard that the other day, eighty percent of the thoughts that we naturally have are negative. Right, and that's the devil. That is the accuser. He's the one. That's what Scripture calls him, the accuser of our brother, the father of lies. Right. God speaks in love. God speaks in the whisper. God is, I love you. You are good enough. You are worth it. So what we need to do in our life every day is when we start to hear those voices that are not of God, we need to recognize that and cast that out because that's how we find ourselves in those holes. Well, I'll never be as, as holy as Dan. I'll never be as good as so-and-so. I'll never, so why even try? And then we find ourselves going to the bottle or going to porn or going to drugs or going to whatever else, you know, anger issues and all those other things that are out there. So if I could give any advice to you, if you're hearing those things in your life, start paying attention to the voices in your head, what they sound like and who they're coming from. Because if you start looking at the positive side of things, you start listening to God's voice and you start to trust and let go of that steering wheel. So many of us are white knuckling that steering wheel as guys, we want to control everything. But as soon as you let go and you let him have it, you're going to realize that so many things in your life that matter don't matter. What matters is him and his opinion and what he wants you to do. And you start listening to that voice, that negativity starts to subside and you really start finding joy in your life. Mm, that's perfect. We always like to end it off with a challenge and I didn't even <laughs> ask you for a challenge and you <laughs> put it out there. So that was awesome. So guys, yeah. take those thoughts captive this week, write them down. What are those voices you continually hear and change your thinking, transform your mind. And I, I promise you, I've done it before. I still do it. I always do it. When those negative thoughts come in, you recognize them and you can change them. And with practice, you can change them much, much faster. And that joy really comes into your life. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, I appreciate you so much, John. Thank you so, so much, guys. Check out the show notes on this one. And man, if you know somebody that could use this, share this podcast with them and share John's podcast. It's really cool. Called Just a Guy in the Pew. Thank you, John. Thank you, Dan. It's a joy to be with you, brother. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Journey of a Christian Dad podcast. Thank you guys for being a light. Shine that light out and let others see it. With you guys, part of this community, it helps me be accountable to you guys. It helps me be accountable to myself, be accountable to God and Jesus. I hope you appreciated this episode and picked up some great things. I hope you like the challenge and hope you can execute on that challenge this week. I ask of you, please subscribe, share the show with others. Join us inside of the Journey of a Christian Dad on Facebook, inside our private community. Share that community with others. Have your buddies join. Have other dads that are looking to grow in their faith, grow as spiritual leaders of their family. As we engage in our journey and be intentional with it, we can help others grow theirs as well. We thank you again for listening. We thank you for all your reviews. Look forward to reading a review of yours on a future show. So, dear God, Thanks for blessing all of us, and thanks for drawing us closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Have fun, guys.